gospel, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 10. 2 Kings chapter 10, that's page 294 in the Pew Bible there. If you don't have uh, your own copy of God's Word, I invite you to take that. And if you don't have a Bible yourself, we'd love for you to keep that. Uh, take it and read it, get to know God better through His Word. Well, we're continuing our series on Elijah and Elisha's ministry, uh, the Word of the Lord, and continuing really kind of three-part house cleaning as we're getting rid of Ahab and all that he's done in the land of Israel, all the harm that he's caused. And we are in chapter 10. We'll be working through this entire chapter this morning. And we'll see that once again, the reign of tyrants always yields to the inescapable justice of Jesus the King. The reign of tyrants always yields to the inescapable justice of Jesus the King. So if you have a copy of God's word there, take it. We'll read the first 11 verses now of 2 Kings 10. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the rulers of the city, to the elders, and to the guardians of the sons of Ahab, saying, Now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also, and weapons, select the best and fittest of your master's sons and set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid and said, Behold, the two kings could not stand before him. How can we stand? So he who was over the palace and he who was over the city, together with the elders and the guardians, sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants, and we will do all that you tell us. We will not make anyone king. Do whatever is good in your eyes. Then he wrote to them a second letter, saying, If you're on my side, and if you're ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. <clears throat> now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. When the messenger came and told him they had brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, Lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until the morning. Then in the morning, when he went out, he stood and said to all the people, You are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who struck down all these? Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men and his close friends and his priests, until he left him none remaining. Well, last week, we saw the beginning of purging the house of Ahab from Israel. We saw an Israelite king and a Judean king executed by Jehu, one by his own hand and the other by his soldiers. Well, this week, we'll see this purge, this house cleaning continue and escalate. The section we just read, obviously, he's going after Ahab's family now. And you remember from 2 Kings 9 that he's completing a commission from the Lord, that he shall wipe out the whole house of Ahab. But as you track through the history of Israel, particularly in this era, you see two things that go along on parallel streams. You've got Ahab's house, that's the ruling house, the political influence in Israel. But along with Ahab's house comes the house of Baal, or Baal worship. And so Ahab and Baal go together. 
And so we'll see as we track through this that not only does Jehu have to deal with Ahab's house, he's got to deal with the house of Baal as well. But after cutting off the head of the snake, it's time to scour the nooks and crannies of this political house in verses 1 through 17. Ahab's son Joram and his grandson Ahaziah of Judah are dead. But Ahab was a busy guy. He has 70 sons in Samaria. So not only does Jehu need to take care of the king, he needs to take care of everyone who could conceivably have a claim to the throne. And so the first nook he looks in is for Ahab's family in verses 1 through 11. Now, this could conceivably be a long, drawn-out, bloody battle. Jehu issues a challenge to the leaders of Samaria, the capital city of Israel. Now, if you remember the last couple of weeks, Jehu starts out way in the east here in Ramoth Gilead. He's been there fighting the Syrians. Once he gets word, he travels over to Jezreel, kind of in the middle here. And he sends word from Jezreel to Samaria. So Samaria is the capital city of Israel. All the leaders are there. Most of Ahab's leading members of his family are there. Jehu is still out in Jezreel. He sends a messenger and he says, basically, get ready, I'm coming. Well, the leaders in Samaria have no interest in battling Jehu. I mean, he's already taken out the two kings, so they imagine that they are next. So instead, they send word back and say, whatever you want, we're in. Verse 4 tells us they were exceedingly afraid. Now, there's some logic to their fear. But I got to say, if, you know, if I'm one of these 70 sons, I can't exactly empathize with them. I mean, their logic doesn't mean too much to me as one of the king's children. But the leaders band together and send word to Jehu, we are your servants. We will do all that you tell us. So previously their allegiance has been to this other king, and now they say, we won't make anyone king. Do whatever is right in your eyes. Now Jehu is a man of action. So verse 5, the city leaders say, you do whatever seems good to you. And he sends word back and he says, I've got something for you to do. If you're on my side and if you are ready to obey me, Take the heads of your master's sons, verse 6, and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. So he sends word to Samaria, and they're to come back to Jezreel with the proof of their loyalty. It's one thing to offer passive support to a leader. That's another thing to put your money where your mouth is. Jehu says it's time to put up or shut up. They've got to do the work themselves. Tragically, these city leaders include not only great men of the city leaders, but also the guardians and mentors of these sons. This is an execution by some distant mob. It's Ahab's friends, closest supporters taking part in the slaughter of his family. As Ahab and his house had slaughtered Naboth and his sons, so now Ahab and his sons will be slaughtered. Well, in the ancient Near East, it was common practice. One of the greatest deterrents to rebellion was proof of how rebellion would come back on your own head. So it was common practice for conquering kings to make an example of those who had dared to resist their authority, to cut off the heads of their opponents and pile them up outside the city gates. You can imagine what a vivid reminder this would be to anyone entering the city. And what happens to anyone who opposes Jehu? Well, the next morning we have this terrifying and yet curious scene. The heads are piled up, 
And then Jehu says something rather confusing in verse 9. He says to the people, you are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master. But then he asks this sort of trap question. But who struck down all these? It was not Jehu's hand, but someone else's. Well, he seems to be doing two things here. He's pointing out that though he led the rebellion, these leaders have now joined him in the rebellion. I killed King Joram, but who killed the king's sons? At this point, they're all in it together. But then secondly, in verse 10, he equates resisting Jehu with resisting the word of the Lord. Know then that there shall fall to earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. So he's equating resisting him with resisting the Lord. There's this beautiful pronouncement in verse 10. There shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord. Well, in the end, it's an ironic pronouncement because as we'll see, Jehu is carrying out the word of the Lord. But he carries it out only so far as it benefits him personally. Now, there's a tendency in all of us to read the Bible through sort of rose-colored glasses. Or in my case, Joshua-colored glasses. Now, yours look more like Donnie-colored glasses or Mary Catherine-colored glasses or John-colored glasses. But we all tend to see parts of the Word that affirm us, things that we want to believe. God is love. That's like a warm blanket we want to wrap ourselves in. Be holy as I am holy. Now that one's a little harder. And maybe that was for the old time people. There are parts of the word that sort of confront us or rub against the grain. We soften the word when it comes to those parts. Things like James 4 verse 1. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? Or Proverbs 13.10, only by pride comes strife. Now, when it comes to seeing these parts of God's word for our neighbor, I mean, we're good with that. Well, yeah, we wouldn't have so many problems around her if she weren't so proud. I mean, if he weren't always acting that way, I wouldn't have so many problems with him. He's the one creating the problem. I wouldn't argue so much if she weren't so hard to deal with. I mean, we lean into the word when it benefits us, and we sort of hush it when it doesn't. But the word of God is such a gift. It wounds us in our pride and comforts us in our sorrows. So we lean into the word in all its goodness, in all its parts. We let it shape and conform us and mold us and make us like Christ. Well, after... Pursuing Ahab's family, it's time to look into another corner here. Ahaziah's family in verses 12 through 14. Let's pick up now in verse 12. Then Jehu set out and went to Samaria. On the way when he was at beth of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and he said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the relatives of Ahaziah. And we came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. He said, take them alive. And they took them alive and slaughtered them at the pit of beth Ekid. Forty-two persons, and he spared none of them. Jehu is seeking out every spot where the stain of Ahab's sin remains on the land. 
He sent word from Samaria to Jezreel, and he's received proof that these sons have been executed. Now he heads to the capital city himself. And on the way there, in verse 13, he meets some other relatives. Now, these aren't relatives of the king of Israel. These are relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, the southern kingdom. As you may remember, Ahaziah is also a member of Ahab's house. He's Ahab's grandson. And these us thus under this order of execution. Forty-two more people dead. Relatives of Ahab. Well, we come to more of Ahab's family in verses 15 through 17. Let's pick up there. And when Jehu departed from there, he met Jehonadad, the son of Rehab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart true to my, too, true to my heart as mine is to yours? And Jehonadab answered, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and Jehu took him up with him into the chariot. And he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria, till he had wiped them out according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. Now verse 15 introduces us to a random character, Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. We haven't met this guy before. We don't know anything about him. He swears loyalty immediately to Jehu in verse 15, and he hops in and rides along. Is he a member of the royal house? Is he a city leader? Is he a supporter of one of the kings? He's none of these things. He is, if you remember all the way back in, verse, in 1 Kings 18 and 19, he is one of the 7,000. Do you remember them? The 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Jeremiah 35 tells us that Jehonadab was the leader of a group of separatists who left the cities of Israel and all the corruption. They moved out into the wilderness, refused to drink alcohol, and relied only on the Lord for their survival. Jeremiah 35, verse 15, I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way. Amend your deeds and do not go after other gods. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to you and your fathers, but, do not, but you do not incline your ear. You do not listen to me. The sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have kept the command that their father gave them. But this people has not obeyed them, obeyed me. So Jonadab is a leader of a faithful group of Israelites. People we've never heard from, people living out of the limelight in the wilderness. They're not world changers. They're not leadership influencers. They're just another group of God's faithful, silent servants. And he apparently has come out to see if the stories are true. Is Ahab's family gone? Will Jehu be true to the word of the Lord? So in verse 17, Jehu finishes wiping out Ahab's house. Just take a minute to look how complete the fulfillment of the word of the Lord is about Ahab. Verse 11, he left him none remaining. Verse 14, he spared none of them. Verse 17, he struck down all who remained till he had wiped them out. You see, it's true. Forgiveness and redemption are available to everyone. But judgment comes for everyone who doesn't submit to the Lord. Yet in the midst of this awful judgment, there's another reminder that God always preserves a remnant even when you can't see it. 
a previously anonymous man, sometimes called Jonadab, sometimes called Jehonadab, the son of Rehab, enters the picture. And Jeremiah tells us that not only is he faithful, he's led a group of disciples who are obedient to the word of the Lord. God never leaves himself without a witness. In 1 Kings 19, there are 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Hebrews 13 puts it this way, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even when we feel most alone, God's children are never truly alone. God never leaves himself without a witness. Israel's in a dark place. By all external appearances, seems to be without any biblical faithfulness. But here we meet another otherwise anonymous servant of the Lord. Have you ever felt alone? I mean, you could sit in a room full of people and feel alone. Being a Christian can feel lonely. Being a Christian teen walking into a school that feels hostile can feel lonely. Being a parent of that teen walking into that school can feel lonely. Being single can feel lonely. Being married and yet feeling alone can feel more lonely still. Perhaps the loneliest road of all, growing old, watching spouse, family, friends die one by one by one until you feel like Elijah. I, even I only am left. And yet God promises I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will hold you fast. Brothers and sisters, even when we feel our most alone, Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. It is true. This brings us from scouring the nooks and crannies of the house to destroying the rotten religious foundation on which Ahab's rule was built. Let's pick up now in verse 18. Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshipers of Baal came so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal. And the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. He said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. And he said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshipers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, The man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of of offering the burnt offering, 
Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal. And they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. So Jehu lays a crafty plot in verses 18 through 24. He announces, I've done away with Ahab's house, but I'm keeping his religious devotion. Idols, they're all good. In fact, if you think he served Baal, we're really going to serve Baal. So the prophets, priests, and worshipers, they're no doubt a powerful group of people in Israel at this time. They not only prop up Baal, but by Baal being influential, they themselves are propped up in positions of influence. As the religious life of Israel at this time centers on Baal, not on Yahweh, the true God. The prophets, priests, worshipers have seen what happened to the house of Ahab. So when Jehu announces, we're going to have a giant worship service in honor of Baal. And if you're not there, you're going to die. They all come running. And this isn't the first time that people had church clothes. These men have clothes too. Verse 22 tells us they have special robes or vestments that identify them. Might not be a coat and tie, but it was something. To Jehu's credit, he goes to great lengths to make sure that he doesn't kill anyone by mistake. In verse 3, he makes sure there are no followers of Yahweh there. Apparently under the pretense of making sure that they wouldn't disrupt this worship service. So the followers of Baal make sure there are no imposters among them. Then they head inside to celebrate their idolatry. Jehu has 80 warriors stationed outside the temple. Perhaps as the prophets, priests, and worshipers are entering the temple, these guards are facing outside, presumably to protect the people on the inside. But you can visualize what happens next as the worshipers pass, the soldiers turn from facing outward to facing the temple itself, and Jehu says, leave none alive. If any escape, I will, you will forfeit your life. Now, verse 25 is a little bit interesting because it sounds like Jehu himself offers the sacrifice. But the text actually says just that the sacrifice was offered, not that he did it himself. So we don't know who made the sacrifice, presumably these worshipers. I think it probably wasn't Jehu. So the soldiers carry out their duty. They execute all these worshipers. Ancient worship focused its worship on images and pillars, and so they destroy the pillar of Baal and the temple of Baal. They turn it into literally a dump, or what our versions translate as a latrine or bathroom. We don't really know that it's, for instance, an outhouse, but it's some sort of dump, a place for casting off refuse. The house of worship becomes a house for personal convenience. Well, what's the root of the political hardship? So it's cleaned out the political house of Ahab, and now he's going after something else. But the root of all of this hardship is idolatry, and that's not unique to Ahab. Now, we don't have Baal or pillars in the same way today, but the line between politics and religion is often hard to tell. It often blends so closely that it's hard to tell the difference. We did a poll among many Christians today measuring their political devotion, and their religious devotion. I think we'd find quickly that many of us spend more time imagining 
political reform than we do worshiping Christ. Well, why is this? Well, it's not because we want bad things. I mean, presumably, we're wanting good things to happen. But it's far easier for us to imagine that the solutions to our problems are human in nature rather than divine in nature. It's far easier to imagine that planning and scheming and doing will accomplish more than worshiping and thanking and praising and praying. Because we think our problems are human in origin. And it's not that humans don't matter. What we do matters. I'm not saying to set that aside. But we, like Ahab, like Jehu, like every person since Adam and Eve, battle with making good things into God things. God-like things. We take our children, we elevate them. We take our career and we elevate it. We take our position in life and we elevate it beyond what God intends. We take good things and we're able to warp them into God-like things. And we worship the created thing instead of the creator. We, like Jehu, like Ahab, are guilty of idolatry. We don't do Baal worship. We do self-worship and we're really good at it. This is why Paul writes to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 1. He says, you have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus. You see what was true in Jehu's day? What was true in Paul's day is true also in our day. Our hearts are idol factories. When all you have to do is have someone poke your idol and you know. Why do we get so angry? Why do we get so irritated? Because our hearts are producing idols. We live so surrounded by idols that often we don't even recognize them. In one way to sort of evaluate this is to begin to take stock of the things that consume your thoughts, your time, your money. We can spend months dreaming and thinking about some sort of luxury purchase. And by that, I don't mean a million-dollar home. It could be a new phone or a new computer or a new instrument or a new set of cleats. We can spend hour upon hour upon hour on social media mindlessly surfing what's going on in the world and yet find it impossible to spend 10 minutes praying. We can sit in front of the TV and hear the prophets of our day on our favorite news channel hour after hour after hour proclaiming their truth. And yet find ourselves too tired in the morning to dig into the truth. We can devote an entire weekend to sweating, getting sunburned all weekend at a sports tournament and yet struggle to make it out the door to church on Sunday morning. Why is that? It's not unique to you. It's me. We all do this. Our hearts manufacture idols. Yours aren't mine and mine aren't yours, but we've all got them. Now, one way to respond to this is in guilt and condemnation. And since we've got so many, we try to kill them ourselves. 
Now, there's a sense in which that conviction can be a gift of the Holy Spirit as God lays his finger on those things. But in our world, oddly enough, we can feel guilty about our idol and caress it at the same time. We can feel bad and still cherish it. Well, how does Jesus say to deal with idols? Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. Now, it's possible to misunderstand what Jesus is actually saying here as one of the church fathers, early church fathers, origin did. He began cutting off body parts. Jesus isn't literally saying to cut off parts of your body. Rather, he's pointing out the fact that we have to be so radical in our repentance that we have to recognize we can't deal with our sin ourselves. Ultimately, he's saying you would have to tear out your own heart. Because as Jeremiah 17 says, your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And Jesus isn't saying to commit some sort of suicide. He's saying your problem is too big for you to fix. You need some dramatically powerful intervention. It's what the Lord says in Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, there is no other. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be saved. In the Lord is salvation and nowhere else. I mean, as Jesus said in Matthew 16, what will it profit you to gain the whole world, to get it all, everything you've ever dreamed of, and lose your Oh, friend, would you turn from your heart's idols to serve the living and true God? Would you turn from sin to Christ? Would you trust Jesus and Jesus alone to deliver you from sin? God sent his son in love so that anyone who trusts him doesn't have to bear the penalty for his sin but can have eternal life. Would you trust Jesus today? This takes us from destroying the foundation of idolatry and Baal worship, sadly, to Jehu's own incomplete spiritual devotion. Let's pick up now in verse 28. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Hazael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel, from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, and the Reubenites, and the Manassites, from Aroer, which is by the valley of Arnon, that is Gilead, Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? 
So Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoaz, his son, reigned in his place. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. So Jehu destroys Baal worship. This is awesome. Verse 30, he wiped out Baal from Israel. Yet after removing the rotten foundation, he rebuilds a crumbling house himself. Verse 29, he did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth. That is the golden calves in Bethel and in Dan. Now you may remember that when Israel split into two nations, the northern and southern kingdom, Though the southern kingdom is smaller, it houses the capital, Jerusalem, as well as the temple, the center of Hebrew worship. Well, the first king of the northern kingdom worried that if he allowed everyone to travel into Jerusalem, soon their devotion would return to Judah, and he would lose his own kingdom. So he himself built houses of worship at the northern and southern ends of his own kingdom in Bethel and in Dan. He built golden shrines here, much like the calves that Aaron built at Mount Sinai. Ahab had added another layer to this idolatry by bringing in Baal worship. So Jehu wipes out the foreign Canaanite god, Baal, but he doesn't get rid of Israel's own idols. So the Lord commends Jehu for destroying the house of Ahab and its idols. And he says, Jehu's house will rule for four generations. But verse 31 tells us, Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. So though Jehu will reign a long time, 28 years, according to verse 36, the kingdom continues to decline. In verse 32, the kingdom begins to be parceled out. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Hazael, king of Syria, is the human being doing the acts, but the Lord is the one bringing it about. Verse 16, Jehu had invited Jehonadad, the son of Rechab, into his chariot and said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. But Jehu's zeal doesn't go deep enough. It goes deep enough to remove any threat to his power, but it doesn't dig into the most important place. It doesn't dig deep into Jehu's own heart. In other words, Jehu is better at seeing and removing the idols of others than removing his own. In Hosea chapter 1, the Lord tells Hosea to name his firstborn son Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. You see, in the end, Jehu, the instrument of judgment, will himself be judged. Well, what do we do with someone like Jehu, who wipes out Ahab, but then we see he's far better at removing Ahab's idols than his own? Well, we take the mirror of God's word, as James 1 puts it, and we hold it up, and we begin to see a little bit of ourselves there as well. But then we thank God that Jehu isn't the only picture of incomplete devotion that we see in God's word. His mission is clear. Wipe out Ahab's house. He is an instrument of judgment. But he is not the only king of Israel to ascend to the throne from a different family. Do you remember the second king of Israel? David? Remember Saul had failed. 
And David came in. And when David became king, how did he deal with Saul's family? Well, he dealt with them quite differently than Jehu dealt with Ahab's family. And if you know anything about King David, he has tons of skeletons in his closet. We call it adultery, but it's really sexual assault with Bathsheba. Murdering Bathsheba's husband. He's a terrible father. He spends years of his life fleeing from friends and family members. And yet God's word in describing David describes him how he is a man after God's own heart. I mean, you don't go sexual assault, murder, terrible father, man after God's heart, do you? I mean, where do you get this with David? Well, I think one way we see God's heart in David is his mercy toward his enemies, toward Saul's family. Jehu hunted down every member of Ahab's house so he could kill them. David pursued every member of Saul's house that he could find so he could bless them. And in David's mercy, we see just a dim reflection of the mercy of God in pursuing us. In pursuing sinners, Jehu pursues enemies to destroy them. David chases them to love them. And in the gospel, God pursues those who are his enemies to love them, to redeem them, to adopt them, to sanctify them, to glorify them, to make them co-rulers with him. I mean, we probably don't have, or at least shouldn't have, the opportunity like Jehu to wipe out our enemies. But like Jehu, we have a, hard, a far easier time dealing with the idols of others than dealing with our own. And yet God is a God of compassion toward his children. Not because he tolerates our idolatry, he doesn't. I mean, we see in Jehu a picture of what God's enemies deserve. But though as we've admitted our own hearts are idol factories, God doesn't wipe us out. How can this be? Jehu kills all of Ahab's children. God judges his own child in our place. God sent his son, his own son, and then God takes the goodness and the love and the favor that he has for his son, and he places it on us. The gospel is a message of the God who should judge us, instead pursuing us to love us, to take rebels and make them friends, though he should wipe us out to redeem us, to love us, to give us an eternal inheritance. I mean, talk about grace. The people that should be destroyed are not because God judged his own son. And then he calls us in love, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come to me, lay your idols at my feet. I have judged my son. Turn to me. Oh, brothers and sisters, when First Peter talks about that we have an inheritance that's imperishable, incorruptible, undefiled, waiting in heaven for us, it's not one we have earned. It's one Christ earned in our place. What grace! So we respond to God's grace in gratitude and worship, in thanks, praising him for his mercy and his grace. 
that he doesn't judge us like he judged Ahab, but he has mercy on us for the sake of his son. Let's respond now to the word and repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then we'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now. God, we thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, we thank you that as we heard this morning, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has yet to turn from sin to Christ, that they would do that today. Lord, I pray for us as your children that you will help us worship and give thanks because of your love for us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.